Today is the first day of the new year. It's not our liturgical new year, but it's our calendar new year, which in many ways drives our imaginations and our life and most of the things that we do. For many of us, today's a day of hope. For some of us, it's a day of dread. Others, it's a day of anticipation or a day of anxieties. For others, it's just any normal day. Now, I'm sure there are people in this room who've been looking forward to this day for some time. You've set out a plan for today. You have made what some might call a resolution for today in the next 364 days. Today surely marks the greatest uptick in gym memberships that you'll see in the calendar year on January 1st. Diet websites have probably experienced server crashing traffic on January 1st. 12-step programs are starting to be filled. Letters to people that you've long since been alienated from are written, if not sent. For many of us, today marks a day in which we say, this year something will be different. This year, maybe something might turn around in my life. Today, I resolve that 2023 will be different than 2022 in some way. But then something interesting very often happens in our lives, doesn't it? February hits, and we begin to question the longevity of our New Year's resolution. We say, is that really very realistic? If we did something hard, then, you know, March comes around and we make small compromises. We tweak and accommodate our New Year's resolution. And then April hits and we're ready for Easter because we are marred in self-loathing and grief because we've completely jettisoned our New Year's resolution in some way. Or am I the only one that's experienced that process of grief and loss? And I think it's fitting that on the second week of Christmas tide, the second Sunday of Christmas tide, um, we always read Galatians 4, 4 through 7. This passage about how Jesus Christ came to redeem us from being under the law. Because New Year's resolutions, in some way, in a very tiny, in a very marginal way, reveal to us something about the law that the law in the scriptures is considered a shackle. We are crushed by it, hampered by it. It actually compounds our grief and our sense of loss. And what we recognize is that we have a war waging in our flesh and we so often lose that war and we end up in failures, in, in uh, breaking the law, even laws that we write for ourselves like a New Year's resolution. Some of you have asked me this, you know, what should I give up for Lent? I always say something that's hard enough that you probably will fail at it to reveal the nature of the law. And so too, today we, we begin this new year, this new season, and some of us are engaged in year's resolutions, and I don't want to diminish them at all. But all of us live our lives in understanding that there is a law before us, there is a standard set before us that we don't even come close to meeting. And we need redemption from it. And so today, I want to look at one of the most complicated um, truths in the scriptures. This nature of the law 
and the gospel. The law and the gospel. By looking at Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And I think it is one of the more complicated realities in the Christian life. uh, Because I'll just say this honestly. I don't think I've ever rewritten a sermon more times than I've rewritten today's. It's not merely, if it's somewhat convoluted, it's not merely that the neighborhood kids had a fireworks show last night. Um, It's also because this is one of the things that our hearts rebel against. We desperately want to be made right with God by our works of the law. And the scriptures say that's absolutely not how you can be made right with God. It's only through a righteousness revealed apart from the law in Christ Jesus. But so often we don't know what that means. So today I want to teach a little bit, because I think many of us were raised maybe in dispensational uh, traditions or maybe traditions that just aren't tethered to the Protestant Reformation. And so we weren't adequately taught how to distinguish law and gospel. But Galatians 4 clearly shows this to us. So if you would open with me to this great Christmastide passage. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Martin Luther, the great catalyst of the Protestant Reformation uh, in his Heidelberg Disputations, he said that the mark of a true theologian is a man or a woman that can rightly distinguish between the law and the gospel. That's the mark of a true theologian. If you understand the distinction between the law and the gospel, but so often we don't actually understand what's going on in the law in the Bible. Why is there all of this talk about the law? Why does the Old Testament permeated with language about the legal standards, the civil standards of Israel, the ceremonial standards of the sacrifices that are offered to God and the cleanliness rituals, and then then the moral law that's offered? Why is there law everywhere in the Old Testament? And so often what we do is we diminish the power of the law, and therefore we understate the power of of the gospel. So what is the law in the scriptures? What is the law doing? Well, the reformers said that there's three uses of the law. You've heard me talk about this in passing, but I want to really dive into it today. The three uses of the law. Let's look at the third use first, because that's kind of the end use, the direction we are all pointed towards. And we see that in Psalm 119 today. When David says he delights in God's law, that's because God's law The moral law, not the ceremonial law, not the civil law of the Old Testament, but the moral law is meant to actually structure and guide our lives. It actually is what it looks like to be rightly ordered. This word righteous, we use the word righteous all the time, and we use it as theological lingo, and we often wonder, like, what does that righteousness mean? It just means to be right, to be right with God, to be right with the world, and to be right within yourself. And when we follow God's moral law, what do we experience? We know what it's like to feel like we are living as we were meant to live. When we don't have a cloud of guilt hanging over us. How many of you have experienced freedom from sin before? 
and you feel like a giant weight has been removed from your shoulders. That's what it means to live, to be right with God, to be right with those around you because you no longer have some sin that you're hiding from others, and to be right inside of yourself because you don't have this sense of self-loathing and hatred. That's the third and ultimate use of the law. But here's the thing. So often, that's the only understanding of the law that we have. And if that's the only understanding of the law that we have, we're in big, big trouble. If you read, I'm not going to name their names, some major fundamentalist, very popular theologians, like biblical, I won't call them biblical scholars, I won't call them theologians because I think they're hacks, but pastors today, and they're very popular in the Bible tradition, that's all I'll say, that's the only understanding of the law that they have, and it will kill you. It will kill you. Because we all know, and we're going to get to this in a minute, none of us live here. None of us live here. But we all still know that's where we need to be moving. That's what maturity looks like. Now, there's a second use of the law, and this is the use of the law that that we need in society. This is the constraining use of the law. This is a law that, you know, someone maybe is a sociopath and they don't care about killing someone, but they care a lot about themselves, right? So they're not going to kill someone because they're afraid they're going to get caught and go to prison, right? This whole idea of you can't legislate morality, that is so dumb. All of legislation is morality, right? Do this, don't do that. Do this, you get in trouble, right? We have a bunch of lawyers in this room. It's all legislative morality, okay? That's what curbs the human heart. We need laws so you don't just get, you know, robbed, right? That's, that's the understanding of the law we can understand. But here's the one that we, we have a hard time understanding then. Why, if this is the use of the law and this is the use of the law, those are good things, Why would Paul say we are under the law? Why would Paul say we need redemption from the law? That doesn't make any sense. If all the law is is showing you godly living and making it so your neighbor doesn't rob and kill you, why do we need redemption from that? We need to live in that. We don't need redemption from that. So what's this other understanding of the law that we need redemption from? from? Well, this is what the reformers called the first use of the law, that the law is a mirror which holds up to us the perfect standards of God, that God says, if you want to come and be made right with me, this is what it looks like. This is the standard. This is the path. And you know what we tend to do is we tend to make these gradations of sin, of venial sins and mortal sins and all these things so that we can kind of limit that and qualify that. But those qualifications are not in the scripture. God says, if you want to be with me, this is what it looks like. And then you look at yourself and you say, if this is the path to God, then I am on the path to somewhere else. But so often, what do we do? We don't look at the law, so we don't actually have to look at ourselves. But when we actually take a real assessment of our lives, when we take a real assessment of who we are and how we stand before God, when we take the law seriously, and especially when Jesus takes the law and then applies it even to intention, 
When even intention becomes a part of the law, what do we say? Woe is me, I am undone. And there is not a single one who can stand before God as pure, as righteous, as those who can stand in his presence. We all stand as guilty. That's what the law does. The law kills us. Because ultimately, what is the law doing there? It compounds alienation. If the law is meant to bring us into the presence of God, and we look at it and say, I'm nowhere near that, what does it do? It drives us further away. The very first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned and they saw that they were unclean, what did they do? They hid. The law compounds alienation. The law reveals to us that we can't stand in God's presence in our own power. You know, we have this in all different aspects of our lives, right? I was thinking about it as I was trying to struggle with, okay, in our culture today, we don't think about guilt enough, right? So how can we think about it in a way that, that will resonate, especially with our young people? And I remember in middle and high school, there is no time in your life where there are more laws. Do you remember that? That's why everyone's like, I don't want to go back, right? Because there are so many laws about inclusion. If you do this, if you say this, if you dress like this, then you're included, right? And if you don't, then you're out. And so what often happens? We say that, you know, the interesting thing is if you ever like meet a cool kid, I wasn't a cool kid, but if you meet a cool kid later in life, what do you find out? The people that were in the inner rings were the most afraid because deep down they knew I'm not meeting the standard. It's not actually who I am. It's not actually what I want to be. And so it actually compounded a sense of alienation, even when you feel like you're in the inner ring. This is what the law does in our hearts. We always feel like a hypocrite. We always have our sins before us. We know with every step that we try to make to get closer to God, we actually feel further away. And with this understanding of the law, then we can start to understand Paul's letters more clearly. With this understanding of the law, we can understand Romans chapter 7 more clearly. When Paul says in Romans 7, 8 through 9, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What does the law do? It compounds a reality that we can't be made right with God in our own strength. And I like to think about, you know, you guys have heard, some of you have even asked me about this. Why do you talk about addiction so much? Because it did, one, because there's a massive amount of addiction in our world and we're not talking about it enough. But two, because if we're really honest about what sin is actually like, it is addiction. And what do you know about an addict? The worst thing you can do about, to them is scream, just stop it. When you scream in an addict, just stop it. Just cut it out. 
Just sort yourself out. Figure out your life. Make things better. What does it do? It drives them deeper and deeper into their addiction. And that is precisely what the law does. When we think by our actions, we can enter into God's presence. The more that we try, the more we see that we are incapable of doing it ourselves. This is why the church should be the place where addicts feel the most at home, where the broken feel the most at home. Because every time we walk through these doors, we all admit, that's me. And this is the place where the gospel comes. See, this is why we need to actually know what the law is, because it takes us to the very depth of our need. And it's in this place that Jesus Christ arrives. It's in this place that the miracle in Bethlehem occurred, that God became man to redeem those who were under the law. Now let's go back to our passage today and look at it with new eyes. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. How can we be made right with God? By our own action? By our own righteousness? We have no hope, but purely as an act of God's grace by his work to redeem us, by his work to resurrect us, by his work to live a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. And you see, when we understand that it's a righteousness that is revealed apart from the work of the law, we recognize, what does that mean? My only hope of being made right with God is if someone does it for me. My only hope of being brought out of my alienation and into reconciliation is if God carries me from beginning to end through that process. If it's up to me, all it does is compound the reality that I can't do it. But then all that does is compound the reality all the more that Christ has done it for me. And you know, with these eyes, we can begin to, to see what Paul is talking about in his letters. Romans 3, this passage that so many of us find so confusing, if you just see it from this lens, it all begins to make sense. Romans 3, 19 through 31 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Where is salvation to be found? How can you be made right with God? It's only by faith. It's by faith that this one came to live a perfectly righteous life in your place. This is why we pre- preach this sermon during Christmas tide. It's because this is why the incarnation is salvific. You have to have the whole life of Jesus to be saved because every moment of his life is lived how? In perfect righteousness, in perfect rightness before the Father. And faith in Jesus says what? All of that righteousness, it's all now yours. All of it. That's how there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when the Father looks upon us, he doesn't see our sin. Rather, he sees the perfect righteousness, the perfect work of his Son. And not only that, But we also see that there's a propitiation in his blood. There's a taking away of our sins. All of our sins that cried out to God for punishment. All those sins that you can't forget. All those sins that cry out to you daily that say you aren't right with God. God can't hear those sins. All the sins you can't forget, God can't remember. And that is only if one comes to live a perfectly righteous life in our place, to die in our place, and to resurrect us into a life of sonship, of daughterhood. This is why Galatians 4, in the way that it does, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So often, what does our sin do to us? It holds up that mirror, and we see that we don't meet the perfect standards of God. But then what does it do to our relationship with God? It makes us come to him with fear and trepidation, doesn't it? We come to him as dejected and lowly. But how can we come to him now? How can you come to him in the power of the Holy Spirit as one that cries, Abba, Father? as one who comes in absolute boldness, absolute confidence, not worrying that something that you have done has disqualified you from your sonship, your daughterhood, as one who can run to the arms of their father in heaven rather than running from his presence. This is the power of the incarnation. This is what draws us together each and every week, that the gospel gives us confidence, boldness, not to run from God, but to run to him. You know, I was thinking about this and then I need to conclude. I was thinking, what is that illustration that can be given? Because I just, maybe I'm just brain dead this week. I'm 
But I, I was struggling. But then, you know, one came to my mind, and they're never that good. But just think about it like this. You know, imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that God is at the top of a glass mountain, and it shards of glass. I'm talking just, it's beautiful, it's glorious. And God says, come unto me. But you don't have any shoes on. You don't have any shoes on. And the law is like trying to walk to God. Every step you take makes the process more impossible. Every step you take makes your feet more bloody. I don't want to get into the graphic details, but you can imagine, right? You just have a stump at some point. But then you have someone who's always standing right next to you with iron boots on, and he says, all you have to do is climb into my arms, and I'll take you where you need to go. And so often in our lives, what we do is say, I got it. I can do it. Faith by its very nature is the work of trust. To say, that's the only way I can get home. It's I give up on myself and I climb into his arms. And he promises you that he'll take you into the very arms of his father. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. That's the distinction between the law and the gospel. The law says, keep trying. Your feet will callous. You'll be okay. And it never works. And Jesus always stands there with his arms open saying, just crawl in. I've got you. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us theologians? Would you make us men and women who can rightly distinguish the law and the gospel? Would you make us those who understand the gift of your grace? Yes, who understand the weight of our sin and the weight of the law, but understand far, far more your goodness to us. Lord, would we come to the bottom of ourselves and find you waiting there, ready to carry us into your good presence, to the glory of your name.